Welcome to the Resurrection Church Podcast. Resurrection Church exists for the glory of God and the joy of His people. If you're looking for a church in the upstate of South Carolina, please join us 9 and 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings at 900 North Main Street in Greer, South Carolina. We pray you'll be blessed by this message. We are continuing our study in the Gospel of Luke, and we're in chapter 18. If you have your Bibles, I'd welcome you to turn there. Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. It'll be on the screen as well. I'm going to start reading at verse 31. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. And they said, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you all. Um, Before we dive into the text, um, we have a kind of a bittersweet thing that's going on in our church right now, our church family and that is that one of our elders, Donnie, and his wife, Shelly, they are moving to Kentucky at the end of this month. And um, that is a, a sad thing because we love Donnie and Shelly very much, don't we? And uh, it's also a great thing in that we, we really, it, it does seem to be clear that this is what the Lord's will is for them. And so we're excited for them for this new adventure that they're going to be going on moving to North, uh, North Carolina, moving to Kentucky. Uh, And so what we want to do, church, and I think this is a very biblical thing for us to do, is honor them. The Bible says to give honor to whom honor is due, and and Paul even instructed us in his letters to give honor to elders, especially those that labor in preaching and teaching. Uh, And so it would be right and good for us to honor them as best as we possibly can. So next week, we're going to do that. We're going to take some time in the service to honor and recognize them. And then after this service, before the second service, we're going to have a reception that is going to be either outside or down near the activity center where you're just going to have an opportunity to love on them, shake their hands. But here's, I think, one of the primary ways that you can participate in this, and that is write to them. We've got a card basket back there at the welcome table. If you haven't already done this, I encourage you this week, Sit down and write a note to them. Even if you don't know them that well, express ask the Lord to help you express gratitude and encouragement to them. Write a prayer 
to them, for them, to them. Write a prayer out for them, a prayer of blessing as they make this move, because we all know moves are stressful things, and there's a lot involved in that. So honor them by writing to them. If you want to include a gift in that card, letter, whatever, that's up to you. That would certainly be helpful and useful with all the moving expenses. Uh, but the main thing is to just, just write words of, of appreciation, of blessing, encouragement, prayers, whatever you feel led to do. And if you haven't done that already, you can do that before you leave today. Uh, we had, you know, I wouldn't do it on a scrap piece of paper. So if, if you happen to have a card handy or something, that's fine. But uh, you can also just bring that with you next week, and we'll make sure that it gets to them. Sound good? All right, let me pray. We'll dive in. Lord, um, there's something really sweet about feeling helpless before you. Something beautiful and wonderful, nurturing to our souls to recognize and to feel our utter destitute in terms of anything that we have to offer you that's of worth. The Christian life is not about what we do for you. It's about what you've done for us. You've done for us what we could not do for ourselves. And so the most honoring thing we could do for you, the most God-glorifying posture we could adopt this morning is to say in our desperation, have mercy on me. And so Lord, I pray that today you would bring us to that wonderful, beautiful, uncomfortable, sweet, and yet pride-crushing posture of Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. We thank you for this. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Uh, we're getting really close, really close, very close to Jesus' suffering and death now. He's about 20 miles away. The last trip to Jerusalem, he started this journey all the way back in chapter 9 where Luke tells us that he set his face like a flint towards Jerusalem. And, and, and now we're, we're getting close. I mean, this is, this is time critical. We are, he's going to head up the mountain some 3,500 feet or so of elevation over a course of about 17 miles from Jer Jericho to Jerusalem. And when he gets there, it's going to get very, very tense. The, the, the tension is going to escalate really quickly. We know why he's going, don't we? And we know what's going to happen when he gets there. But let's pretend like we don't. Can we do that this morning? Let's pretend like we don't know why he's going to Jerusalem. Let's, don't, let's, let's pretend for just a moment that we don't know how he's going to die. We don't know why he's going to die, and we don't, go, we don't know how he's going to die. Let's put ourselves, let's go there with the disciples as they hear these words from Jesus. As they enter into Jericho and they're getting really close to Jerusalem. Verse 31 again. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. Wow. Everything that is written 
is going to happen when we get there. You know, over the centuries since Jesus' death, many, many, many pseudo-scholars and skeptics and critics have considered the suffering death of Jesus and determined that it was a tragic accident. That Jesus was a good guy. He tried to elevate people religiously. He taught good things. He loved people. He helped the poor. He encouraged others to do the right thing. But he just miscalculated. He had good intentions, but he really wasn't capable of following it through. This was a miscalculation on his part. A tragic end to a good story. A good guy that tried to do good, but in the end, he didn't realize, he didn't have enough sense to realize that he just went too far. Others have said he was a misguided nationalist whose efforts at revolution were inept. Hopeless. Others claim he was a self-ambitious conqueror with delusions of grandeur, or he's just a religious nut or worse. But none of that's true. He was not simply a good guy who was a good teacher and a good leader who died for a good cause. He's the Christ of God, and his death was planned meticulously planned. And by this point in the journey, Jesus knows it. He knows it and he understands it down to the most minutest detail. He knows what's going to happen. When he gets to Jerusalem, he's not going to be shocked. He's not going to be caught off guard. He knows exactly what's coming and he's facing it head on. He's going head on into Jerusalem. He set his face like a flint all the way back in chapter 9, and that has not changed the closer we get. I don't know about you, when I know something's coming that's not good, the closer I get to it, the more squirrely I get. Not Jesus, he looks at his disciples and he says, everything that was written is going to come to be. What was written? Open your Bibles to Psalm 22. Let's just look at a little bit of it, okay? Psalm 22. I'm just going to read a a couple few verses here. Interestingly enough, while you're turning, I think when Jesus hung on the cross, this is where his mind and heart were rooted in those moments, in those hours that he hung there. I think he was rehearsing this. And you're going to, I think, think the same thing when we read it. Verse 1 of Psalm 22 My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does that sound familiar? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Skip down to verse 6. Imagine Jesus thinking this while he hangs there. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Verse 14. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot's herd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. 
For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Wow. I can count on my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing, they cast lots. Wow. Go to Isaiah 53. Verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds We are healed. Verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And finally, verse 10. Listen to this. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when he makes his when his soul makes an offering for guilt he shall see his offspring he shall prolong his days the will of the lord will prosper in his hand and so this jesus knowing this and the disciples have access to this too they know the old testament they know the prophecies but they're obviously not connecting the dots, but Jesus says everything that is written and i just read a snapshot a little morsel of what was prophesied that would come from Messiah and Messiah's death. He says it's all going to be accomplished, and then he says, verse 32, chapter 18, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and he will be mocked and shamefully treated, spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day, he will rise. Does Jesus know what's coming? Yes, he does. But the disciples, verse 34, but they understood none of these things. Now, if Luke would have stopped right there, okay, if he just said that, just that one sentence in verse 34, they understood none of these things, we'd probably go, okay, I get that. This is Messiah. This, they're all in with this Jesus by this point, right? They're clear about who he is. They're not fuzzy about whether or not he's the son of God. They're all in. They've left everything to follow him. But we can imagine, can't we, how hard it would be if we're in their shoes and we don't know exactly why he's going to die and we're certainly not clued in on how he's going to die. That's not familiar territory for us that we would hear Jesus say that and just go, that makes no sense. Messiah's going to die? But Luke doesn't stop there. It's not that they just didn't get their heads around it. Look at the rest of the verse. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. That word means concealed. It's like Luke is telling us that their understanding and their ability to grasp the words that are coming out of Jesus' mouth was acted upon. 
It was hindered intentionally and not by Satan. God did this. God kept them sovereignly from understanding it. And if you're like me, I read this kind of stuff in my Bible and I go, why? That makes no sense. Doesn't it seem like, you know, if I was talking to God at this point, I would just say, God, really? Like, I get that it's hard for these first century Jewish followers of Jesus to get their heads around the fact that Messiah is going to die, the long-awaited Messiah that they've anticipated for so long was going to be this conqueror like David, like Joshua, a deliverer like Moses who would bring them out of Roman oppression. They can't fathom that he's going to be a martyr, a, a sacrifice. They, I, Lord, I get that, but wouldn't it be helpful if you could help them get it? Why conceal it from them? This is not the first time this has happened. Go back to chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, verse 44. This is, I think, the second time Jesus has predicted his death. In Luke 18, we're on the third prediction. In this one, Jesus says to them, look at this, let these words sink into your ears. I've said that to my children probably a million times. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. This is right before Luke says he set his face toward Jerusalem. But they did not understand this saying, okay, similar, and it was concealed for them, from them so that they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. Why? I have a couple of thoughts. Actually, I have one. I have one thought about why, and, and it, it's not a really hard thought to come up with because you're like me and I'm like you. When I encounter things that are important, that are bigger than me, if given the opportunity, I'll screw it up. I'll try to take matters into my own hands because I'm not patient. I'm not, I don't like the helpless feeling. I don't like being in a position where something has to be done for me that I can't do for myself. So what do I want to do? I want to take matters into my own hands. I want to fix it. I want to make it better. And I think the disciples are hindered from understanding, fully grasping. Do they know something about Jesus? Yes. Do they know something about his Messiahship? Yes. But they're being prevented from getting their heads around the fact that he's going to die probably because they would try to intervene. They might push back. And I think Luke gives us a clue in chapter 9 that that's exactly what would happen. Look at the very next verse, verse 46. Right after Jesus says these things and they don't get it, Verse 46, and an argument arose among them as to who was the greatest. <laughs> These guys are stellar. And you know what he does? You know what he does when they do that? It's almost the exact same thing that he does in chapter 18. Is He takes an infant, an infant, 
puts that infant right beside him, and he says, be like this. Isn't that what he did in chapter 18? They're trying to bring children to him, infants. And the disciples are like, get those kids out of here. Jesus says, no. You need to be like this. For such is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew, in chapter 16, he records one of Jesus' predictions of his death. And he actually tells us that Peter pulled Jesus aside and rebuked him. That took some guts. Never, Lord. Does Peter have the best of intentions? Yes, he does. He loves this Jesus. He doesn't want Jesus to die. And, and it, it, it seems perfectly logical to Peter to just simply go to Jesus and say, No, Lord, I'm not going to let that happen. And Jesus says, Get behind me, Satan. You're thinking like men and not according to the things of God. Think about it this way. Does Peter realize what he's saying when he tells Jesus, never, Lord, not going to let it happen? No, he doesn't realize what he's saying because if he did, he would realize that if Jesus doesn't die, Peter has no hope. He has no hope. What Peter should have said was amen. So be it. Why are they being prevented? It's almost simply like it's not time for them to get it. Because Jesus has got to do something for them that they cannot do for themselves. You got that? We, We on the same page there? We're going to come back to that. Verse 35. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. As I looked at chapter 18 again this week, and the elders met on Monday, we looked at this, is there's this really fascinating connective tissue all the way throughout chapter 18. And, and I'm going to point out five pieces of that connective tissue. It's the only way I know how to describe it. They're, they're just five, five bits of connective tissue that I'm going to emphasize here. Here's number one. The blind man... And the rich young ruler's address to Jesus. You remember the rich young ruler? Last week, Stan taught that text. And the rich young ruler came to Jesus and said what? Good teacher. Good teacher. Like, you're a good guy. You're wise. You're doing some good things. You're, You're elevating people. I like the way you teach, so give me something so that I can better myself. Something I can do that will make me a good teacher. That's what he said. And Jesus responded to him by saying, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. Obviously, Jesus is trying to press on that young ruler 
to, to, to get him to think about who it is that he's actually talking to. You got it? When the blind beggar asks, what's all this commotion that I hear? Someone says to him, Jesus of Nazareth is coming. That's essentially referring to Jesus by his first and last name. That's his human designation. And what does this guy do? He cries out, Jesus, son of David. That's the first time we've heard this in Luke. Son of David, have mercy on me. Obviously, this blind beggar does not simply think that Jesus is a good guy. Jesus has just told his disciples, all the things that were prophesied about me in the Old Testament, those things are going to be accomplished. And this blind, I don't think this blind beggar has a fully developed Trinitarian theology. I don't think he understands Jesus to be the second person of the triune God, but he understands something. He's heard enough. This is not a normal guy. This is not just another good teacher. This is not just an itinerant preacher. This guy, in some way, is the fulfillment of a prophecy made to King David a couple thousand years ago. Have mercy on me. That's, that's the first piece of connective tissue. Here's the second. You remember that tax collector in the parable that Jesus told? There was a Pharisee and a tax collector, and both of them were praying. And the Pharisee lauds his own piety, lauds his own self-righteousness, and he looks down his nose at everybody else. Lord, I thank you that I'm not like this tax collector, and I give, all, I give tithe of all that I have. And, I, and, and he goes on and on and on, puffing himself up, and then there's this tax collector who's not poor. He's not poor. He's not blind physically. He's a man of means. But somehow he's come to the place where he realizes all that money means nothing. And he's on his face, won't even pick his face up, saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Kind of reminds me of this blind beggar. He's got nothing. Nothing. The only thing he can do is beg. That's his career. That's his life. And people have to help him do that. And so all he can cry, he has nothing to offer. He has no, he has no ability or no concept of standing up before others and lauding anything that's of worth before Jesus. All he can do is cry out, son of David. Have mercy on me. Do you see the connective tissue there? Here's number three. The disciples are misguided, and so are the crowds as they pass this blind beggar. What happened when parents were bringing their children to Jesus? The disciples said, leave him alone. He doesn't have time for that. We've got bigger fish to fry. And in the same way, those who were in front of the entourage with Jesus as, I think this is blind Bartimaeus. Luke doesn't give his name. The other gospels do. Mark does. Bartimaeus, as he's crying out, they're telling him, shh. You know, I, I, I don't like to 
try to piece together other things from the Gospels all the time, but Jesus has not long since raised Lazarus from the dead. There is a lot of hype around Jesus right now. You can go read that in John 11. There is a huge amount of hype around Jesus, and now there's this blind beggar on the road who's distracting us. We're going to Jerusalem, and a revolution's going to happen. That's the mindset of the crowd. We don't have time for blind beggars, and so they, they tell him to shut up. And what does Jesus do? The same thing he did with the children. Nope, 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 nope. Bring them here. Bring him here. Here's the fourth one. Verse 41 of Luke 18. Jesus looks at this blind beggar. One of my favorite things Jesus ever does in all of the Gospels. What do you want me to do for you? <laughs> Wouldn't you have loved to have been a fly on the wall? What do you want me to do? It seems like a ridiculous question to ask a blind man who obviously has some sense of what you can do, Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Here's the other piece of connective tissue. When the rich young ruler came to Jesus, he said, good teacher, what must I do? Give me something. Give me a little, give me a little three points to better myself. Give me, a little, give me a little nugget of wisdom that I can apply and it'll make my life better. That's what a lot of people want when they come to church, isn't it? They want a they they pastor teacher who's a guru and can tell you how to just live better and be better and have better. It's not that the gospel doesn't have anything to say about us having a better quality of life. It's just not on the terms that our world tends to set. But that's, that's what, in our flesh, our carnality, we want Jesus to give us. Get, tell me something I can do to merit. But you know what? It really, what the, what the blind, what, not the blind, but what the rich young ruler should have asked, it's a, it's a dumb question. Stan talked about this last week. What must I do to inherit? That doesn't even make sense. What, what the rich young ruler should have done is come to Jesus and said, or asked, what do you need to do for me that I might inherit eternal life? With the blind beggar, there's just, it, there's, no, there's no opportunity for him to even ask such a ludicrous question because he, he has nothing. He has nothing to offer. He can't bring anything to the table whatsoever. And so Jesus, I think in compassion and mercy, He's not playing with the guy. I think it's a compassionate, merciful question. What do you want me to do for you? And Bartimaeus says, Lord, let me recover my sight. And so Jesus says this in verse 42. So that's the fourth piece of connective tissue. Here's the fifth. Verse 42. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. Literally, that's your faith has saved you. Same thing we got in previous instances in Luke, which says to me that something more went on here than just a blind man physically receiving his sight. 
And immediately, verse 43, he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. When Here's the fifth piece of connective tissue. When the rich young ruler asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? There's an interchange there with Jesus. Stan talked about it last week that ends with Jesus basically saying, your wealth is in the way of your helpless desperation before me. So sell it and give it away to the poor who have no ability to reciprocate. It'd been one thing if Jesus said, sell it and give it to the temple. Then at least people would have gone... No, he says, give it to the poor. Give it to people who have no ability to affirm you or reciprocate to you in any way. Get that stuff out of the way and come follow me. And what happens? He goes away sad because he has great wealth. Bartimaeus doesn't have any wealth in the way. He doesn't have stuff in the way. He doesn't have strength in the way of weakness. He doesn't have stuff in the way of him growing up to be more childlike. Receive your sight and come follow me. Woohoo! Let's go! Do you see the contrast? It's startling, isn't it? There's something sweet, and yet uncomfortable. Something glorious, and yet pride-squashing about being helpless before this Jesus, about coming to the place where you desperately cry before him, you must do for me what I can't do for myself. We know this, but we often forget it. Following Jesus fundamentally is not about what we do for him. It's about what he's done for us. And everything we do in his name and everything that we leave behind in order to follow him is an outgrowth of the gratitude we feel when we realize we love him because he first loved us. What about those disciples? They just don't get it. They don't see it. And, and am I wrong? In some sense, it's not their fault. God's kept them from seeing it. But here's the good news. Jesus didn't leave them there. They were, it, they were prevented. It was concealed from them three different times. But go with me to Luke 24. Host team, you can get ready to serve communion. Stephen, you can come. Please. Luke 24, verse 48, 44, excuse me. Jesus has risen from the dead by this point, okay? He's risen from the dead. 
And he's appeared to his followers. They're scared. They're hiding. He's appeared to them. He eats a piece of fish so that they know he's not a ghost or spirit. He's real. He lets them touch him. And then look at what he says, verse 44. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. What words? The words that we just read in Luke 18. These are the words that I, was, that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then look at the next verse. Then, everybody say then. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things and behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. At that point, I think they went, oh, <laughs> maybe not quite like that, but that's how I imagine it. Oh, He had to do what they could not do for themselves. And I think he had to accomplish it before he let them understand it. Because if he would let them understand it before he accomplished it, they'd probably have tried to screw it, up, screw it up. But after the fact, what did he do? He opened their minds. Let me ask you a question. Are these things hidden from you? That the Son of Man must suffer? That everything that was written about him by the prophets of old must be accomplished? That he must die? That he must rise again on the third day? And that repentance and forgiveness could only be accomplished through his death, through his shed blood, through his atoning sacrifice, through him being the propitiation of our sins? Are these things hidden from you? And I bet most of you in this room would say, no, they're not hidden. I see. You know why you see? Because like that blind beggar, Jesus opened your eyes. And you know what the right response is for you? To come to the Lord's table just like that blind beggar did after he received his sight. Rejoicing, praising God. Why? Because he did for you what you could not do for yourself. And he opened your eyes to see that. So that you don't, you don't come to this Jesus going, what must I do? He says, no. It's not about what you do for me. It's about what I've done for you. Because I did for you what you could not do for yourself. Now, perhaps there are some of you that you don't understand this yet. Maybe these things have been hidden from you. Maybe someone's watching online 
These things have been hidden from you. They haven't really made sense. You've heard about them before. You've heard about this Jesus. You've heard about his death. You've heard about his broken body and his shed blood, but it sounded like nonsense to you. I don't need that. I just need somebody to tell. Maybe I'm interested enough in Jesus that I'd like for him to give me some advice that I can go apply, something that I can go do to better myself. But when it comes to his sacrifice and death, these things have been hidden from you. But perhaps, perhaps today you feel this cry welling up with on the inside of you that says, Lord, have mercy on me. Maybe you've come to the end of yourself and you just, you realize there's nothing I have to offer. And maybe you're like a wealthy tax collector that falls to, you've got, you've got all the resource in the world. But like that wealthy tax collector, you fall on your face. Or be merciful to me, a sinner. Or maybe you're like that blind beggar and you literally realize I have nothing left. My encouragement to you is cry out to the son of David. Have mercy on me. Because he is done for you what you could not do for yourself. So as we come to the table, consider, don't just, don't take this flippantly. This is not, this is not casual. A real body was broken. Real blood was shed. Jesus His life was not taken from him. It was not an accident. He laid it down. Like a sheep before his shearers, he was silent. And he opened not his mouth. Why? Because it was the will of the Lord to crush him. That we might be saved. So consider that. Let me pray. Lord... so helpless this morning before you. And I don't like that. There's part of me that pushes back on that and I don't don't want to feel helpless. I don't want to feel weak. I don't want to be like that blind beggar. I don't want to be like an infant. And yet you're calling me to grow up and become like a child. You're calling me to mature and be like a blind beggar who has nothing to fall before you and say, Lord, you must do for me what I could not do for myself. So Lord, I pray. I'm at the end of myself this morning in terms of what I can do. I, I have tried to laud your word. And now, Holy Spirit, you must do the internal work that can only be done by a sovereign God. And so I invite you, I ask you, I plead with you, I beg you, Encourage believers in the faith and draw the unbeliever to salvation. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And Jesus says, I'm going to die. That everything that is written must be fulfilled. The right response from us, as hard as it is, I don't know about you, but when I say that, when I think about that, when I think about staring him in the eye and saying amen, 
this weird combination of emotions. I want to fall to my face and I want to leap for joy. And I don't know but what that's right. I don't know but what there's... We're peculiar people, you know? This isn't normal. But he is the Christ of God who died that we might be brought from death to life because he didn't stay dead. He rose again. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And I wonder if Psalm 22 was already running through his head when he broke that bread. My bones are out of joint. My heart is melted like wax. They've pierced my hands and feet. I wonder if he was already thinking about what was coming. Because he said, this is my body. It's broken for you. It's done for you. So take and eat when you do remember me. Then he took a cup. And as he lifted the cup and blessed it, I wonder if he was already thinking about the crown of thorns, the scourge, the nails in his hands and feet. And I'm sure he wasn't looking forward to the pain. But Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Scorning its shame, but knowing he was going to sit down at the right hand of the Father and he was going to bring many sons to glory. That was the joy set before him. So he said, this is my blood shed for you for the remission of sins. So drink, and as often as you do, remember me. Jesus, we rejoice this morning that you have done for us what we could not do for ourselves. And like children, like infants, like a blind beggar, we give you praise and glory because you have had mercy on us. And we rejoice that you have opened our eyes. You've opened our minds. You've not left us in the dark. We see now this had to happen because now in your name, by your blood, through your shed body, through your resurrection, we now live and your spirit lives within us have reason to give you glory and I pray as the church is now about to be sent into the world full of darkness that the light of joy that we feel right now would begin to push back the darkness even as we leave this place today and I ask this in Jesus name and let the church say amen I love you I'll see you next week
We hope you've been blessed by this message from Resurrection Church. Please visit resfaith.com. That's R-E-Z-Faith.com, where you can find more sermon archives, learn more about our church, and find a place to give to our ministry. We'd be glad to hear from you. Drop us an email at connect at resfaith.com.